0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.
1: Dean George, would you like to have a seat? Thank you. It's, uh, it's my great privilege and honor to uh, have uh, Timothy George with us today. Uh, many of you know him, and I hope that we can catch a glimpse uh, of uh, who you are, especially in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to hear a little bit about Beeson Divinity School. But before we go any Further, let's have a word of prayer. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and loving kindness and how you have blessed us with brothers and sisters uh, in the Lord and for the ministry of Timothy George and his wife Denise and the the ministry of Beeson Divinity School. Lord, we pray for all of them as the Georges enter into a time of retirement and uh, Beeson enters into a time of transition, that in both instances that they would go from strength to strength. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Dean George, you've been the dean for 30 years at Beeson, and it's
0: kind of hard to believe this, but did you have a life before Beeson? (laughs) What what did you do before Beeson? Well, I was a teacher. I was a professor. I had never been a dean before. I never wanted to be a dean before. I said bad things about my deans back in those days. (laughs) I hope the Lord will forgive me. But um, no, I, there was a, the, the idea of starting a new divinity school in Alabama. It was a donor-driven idea. It came from Ralph Waldo Beeson. Uh, he had given a lot of money to Sanford University and other concerns throughout the city. But near the end of his life, he said, in his words, I want all the rest of this money to go for the Lord. And for, for him, that meant the establishment of a new divinity school to train ministers of the gospel, pastors who can preach is his language, so I was a teacher. I didn't apply for this job. Um, I got a call from the person who was then the president of Samford University, Tom Quartz. said, we've gotten this wonderful gift. We're thinking about starting a new divinity school. There isn't one in Alabama. Would you consider talking with us about this job? So I came down, met Mr. Beeson, met Tom Quartz and other folks, and uh, here I am.
1: And uh, remind us where you were teaching and what you uh, were teaching before you headed to I was
0: teaching at the Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I was a member of that faculty for 10 years. And my field of work was, well, it was a combination, history and theology, historical theology. But I was trained in church history and uh, Reformation studies in particular.
1: And you did that at Harvard?
0: I did, yeah.
1: And when uh, you were asked to do this and... They told you that this is what we want Beeson to look like, especially its interdenominational character. Did you think, how is this ever going to work? Or, or tell us a little bit about the vision of Mr. Beeson, pastors who can preach and it being interdenominational in character.
0: Okay, Ralph Beeson was born uh, in the year 1900 in um, Meridian, Mississippi. His father was named John Wesley Beeson. He was a Methodist out of the Holiness Methodist tradition. Uh, And he grew up and uh, married a Baptist. They became Presbyterians. (laughs) So he said, we have something to learn from one another. And so the idea of an interdenominational school was really born with Ralph Beeson and his vision of what this kind of school ought to be. Uh, In fact, he uses four words in his will, which is kind of the charter of our school in some ways. He wanted the school to be Christian, Protestant, Evangelical, and interdenominational. Now, he was not a theologian. He was a businessman, a very successful one. Uh, But uh, he knew what he didn't like. And in particular, he wanted the school to, when he said evangelical, he he often used the word orthodox. He said, I want you to keep things orthodox down there. Well, I think he meant faithful to the gospel. I mean, uh, honoring the Holy Scriptures, uh, serious about uh, ministry and engagement. And and preaching was a special focus of his. I think he he he, had, he told me he had, heard, had some pastors he didn't think could preach very well. And so he he wanted us to train pastors who could. And that was very simple. And when you think about that phrase, pastors who can preach, it was so almost glib. We say it so quickly. But it's, it encompasses a lot. Pastors who can preach are not just people that get up and speak on the weekend. They're shepherds. So we're talking about formation. We're talking about the way in which pastors are trained and prepared to lead the people of God, the flock of God and then preaching. Preaching what? Preaching the gospel, preaching the scriptures. That was very important to him. And I think we've we've tried to be faithful to that.
1: Yeah I often wondered, I'm glad you said that because I didn't know that, but anybody who gives the amount of money that Mr. Beeson gave and said I want pastors who can preach, I had assumed had heard a lot of bad preaching <laughs> pastors uh, and wanted to remedy that problem. Uh, but so you, you were the first hire for Beeson Divinity School. What did it look like to assemble and interdo not because you have designated spots. You have uh, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, Anglican, uh, and and to get those folks who would be able to represent their tradition, but in such a way that it was in community with one another.
0: Well, we focus on Jesus Christ, the center. Uh, You know, Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Christ the Center. I don't really like that image, center, because it can be understood in a relativistic way. You yank it this way, you yank it that way, the center moves. I I prefer the word, and I think this is what uh, Ralph Beeson had in mind, core. Core is the Latin word for heart. And so what's at the very heart, the essence, the very depth of the identity of this kind of place? Well, it has to be Jesus Christ. And then uh, our commitment is to him and to what we might call the great historic uh, essentials of the Christian faith. The scriptures, the trinity, salvation by grace. And then around the edges of that core, uh, there's lots of room for disagreement about many different things that are important things. I don't want to say they're not important, but they're not essential for what we're about at the school. And so we have five chairs that must be filled, as you say, by non-Baptist scholars from different traditions. Honestly, in 30 years, I want to say this has not been a problem. Because we have had wonderful, godly men and women who have taught at Beeson from these different traditions who respect one another. They genuinely love one another. And see our mission in preparing God-called men and women for the service of Jesus Christ. That's what unites us. So it hasn't really been a problem. Now, occasionally we'll get, you know, our critics from outside. And so if you don't want to ever have a critic, don't ever do or say anything. You'll be fine. But we've had people say, well, you're not Presbyterian enough. Or you're the wrong kind of Anglican. Or you're not, are you really abandoning the Baptist tradition? I'm a a Southern Baptist myself. And so you you expect that. That's just going to come because we live in a highly partisanized and politicized culture, not just politically in the secular sense, but also uh, religiously, denominationally. And we've tried to be a place that, the way I like to put it, our arms are stretching wide open, as wide as the arms of Jesus Christ, to welcome everybody without compromising who we are, our core convictions. That's how we've tried to do it.
1: Well, I've um, been very impressed with not just what Beeson is doing, but what Beeson is producing and the men and women who are graduating from there, uh, heads and shoulders above other candidates that that I've spoken with. And I think part of it is coming into an environment where you are given the freedom to explore and to struggle with those questions that you have and to be able to get different perspectives on those important issues that are not primary but important nonetheless and so Eason is seems to be one of the few places where where that happens but keeping the core at the core is evident in your graduates.
0: Well I had, I had a call I guess we were maybe in early days second or third year from a, um, a Baptist pastor in uh, Alabama uh, And he he was upset that one of the students he had recommended come to Beeson, a Baptist student, was taking New Testament from a Presbyterian, Dr. Frank Thielman, who's a world-renowned scholar. (laughs) And uh, he was upset. He said, well, are they going to come out believing in baptizing babies? Well, I said, I hope they come out knowing more clearly why they believe in baptizing believers But I want them to be exposed to the other view, too, and understand its history and how it fits liturgically and doctrinally, and uh, to be treated with respect. I think that's the key word in all of that, that we we want to respect people. We may differ from them. We do differ from them in many ways, because truth is not a relativistic thing. Uh, And we're seeking it. We don't have it all, but we're seeking it. And so uh, I think it's worked pretty well. It seems to me that you've done a good job of
1: pastoring, and I think that's the right word, pastoring the faculty, and that everybody really is moving in the same direction, and, and they're working toward the same goal, and as I said, that's evident in the students. But being an interdenominational theological college, with the changing trends in the culture, are we getting to a place in the church where we've gotten beyond denominationalism? Because you do see at Beeson people that might come in one thing, but they come out something different, and it seems to me that younger generations are not as committed to particular denominations.
0: I think that's true. We've been saying that for longer than Beeson's been around, that we're living in a post-denominational world, and many would say a post-Christian world, so the old categories, the old labeling, uh, doesn't uh, have as much validity today as it certainly did when I was a student, maybe, although it was beginning to fade even then. No, and I... I'm not. We're not, we're we are interdenominational. We're not anti-denominational. Right. And so I have respect for these great traditions, uh, including your own and all the traditions represented at Beeson, because they're anchored in the history of God's people. They express the faith in different ways, different liturgical forms, some different uh, theological questions and church polity questions, but they come out of a tradition. And we want our students to be faithful to a tradition we, we, we don't encourage people just to be generic Christians now it's true that a number of churches new church plants here in Birmingham don't carry a denominational label that's okay with me as long as the gospel is preached and, uh, but it bothers me just a little bit stepping back from Beeson and just kind of looking at the landscape what bothers me about this trend I think we can certainly call it a trend is how do you pass that on to the next generation I mean, one of the good things denominations did when they were functioning correctly and were not so dysfunctional as most are today, one of the good things they did was to be able to enculturate, to catechize, to find a way of saying this is what it means to be a Lutheran, a Presbyterian, an Anglican, a Baptist. And uh, that, I think, is spraying around the edges given the cultural moment we find ourselves in now. But in the midst of that, God may be bringing out something totally new and different, and so we have to be open to that. You've been involved in ecumenical conversations for a number of years, especially the
1: Evangelicals and Catholics Together movement. And that, I don't think, you know, looking at it now, people don't think it's that big a deal. But at the time, for folks like you and Father Newhouse and others to work together, Uh, It was a really remarkable thing. And tell us how that came about and what you think ecumenism looks like moving forward, uh, especially as we find ourselves as evangelicals and Roman Catholics. And even though on different sides of the
0: Reformation, there seems to be a kinship that
1: we might actually share with Mm. them that we may not in our own
0: denominations. Yeah, that's a great question. First of all, let me say how I became an ecumenist. I was not taught it in Sunday school. Uh, That's a word we never heard in my Southern Baptist Sunday School growing up, ecumenism. In fact, I remember we had pastors sometimes that used to make fun of that word and talk about these ecumaniacs (laughs) uh, that wanted to get everybody together and so forth. That was not me. I come from a much more, I guess you could say, raw part of the Baptist world than that. But uh, really, I majored in history as an undergraduate. I went to Harvard Divinity School, and there I became uh, a student of a great scholar and a great ecumenist. His name was George Hunston Williams. And actually I ended up becoming his literary executor. He had a great influence on me. George Hunston Williams um, was an observer at all four sessions of Vatican Council II. One of the few Protestant observers at all sessions. He was a personal friend of Pope John Paul II before he became the Pope, when he was Bishop of Krakow in Poland. And it was from George Williams and learning how ecumenism is a part of uh, the historical unfolding of God's people, the Catholicity of the church throughout time as well as space, that I got interested in this. And then I began to say, well, can I be a a really faithful, believing, evangelistic Southern Baptist and also uh, be interested in ecumenism? And so I began to read the scriptures. And I found that this was something rooted in the very warp and woof of the Bible itself. Not only that great text in John 17 where Jesus prays to the Heavenly Father that his disciples would be one as he and the Father are one so that the world would believe. That's a great text because it connects Christian unity with mission, with evangelism. Isn't just let's all get together and hold hands and be nice? I don't believe in that kind of ecumenism. But we work together toward unity so that the world might believe. There's a missional, I would say, evangelistic dimension to that. That drew me in. And it didn't seem at all incompatible with my uh, hard-won Baptist faith. In fact, it seemed to me to be important as an expression of it. So when we started B some of you have been, you've seen our chapel. I know you've been there and preached for us. Andrew, uh, it's a beautiful uh Dome above our chapel with 16 figures from the history of the Christian church. Our students call them the Sweet Sixteen. There they are from the 2nd century through the 20th century. And that's an expression, our effort, not perfect by any means, but our little effort to say the church is bigger than any one of our traditions. It's encompassing of all of God's people who seek to be faithful to him. And right next to each other up in our dome at Beeson, are two characters that I don't know of any other place in the world where these two are portrayed together, standing shoulder to shoulder. One of them is St. Thomas Aquinas, the greatest Catholic theologian of medieval times, maybe of all times. And Martin Luther, the leader of the Reformation. Had that happened in the 16th century or if Luther could have time-traveled back to the 13th, I'm not sure they would have wanted to stand next to each other. Right. They probably would have condemned one another. But I have a hope in my heart that maybe up in heaven, or it's kind of weird portraying them in the dome, they understand it a little better and that they're getting along just fine. And that's a, that's a lesson for us. That's an example for us as we seek to follow in their trail and carry the gospel even further than they did.
1: Mm-hmm. And so with... Um, do do you see two in the in well one, it seems like that efforts at ecumenism and unity have waned over the past decade or so as a result of infighting within denominations, uh and um and also a younger generation who may not be
0: interested in it.
1: So it's not really happening structurally, but it does seem to be happening organically.
0: Yeah, yeah. And among younger people, I think, is happening in that, in that way. Uh, we talk about uh, the ecumenical winter, that this is not a good time for ecumenism because the old structures, the councils of churches and things like that that sponsored this have really fallen onto hard times. And I think also, uh, to be honest, a, a lot of ecumenical work has become too politicized and too partisanized to really um, contribute to the purpose for which it was founded. Ecumenism began on the mission field. In 1910, the great Edinburgh uh, Conference uh, on Christian Unity, that was a missionary movement led by a Methodist named John Mott and uh, and inspired by a Baptist named William Carey. Uh, I think ecumenism needs to go back and recover something of that founding vision. And one one of the people that I came to know, another great influence on me, though i didn 't know him uh, for a long period of time, near the end of his life, was Leslie Newbingen. in fact, Leslie Newbingen, the last address he gave outside of Great Britain he gave at Beeson Divinity School, and he said to me, Timothy, you know we, you evangelicals need to be involved in uh, ecumenical matters. We need to be at the table you 're not going to win every vote you 're not going to carry every, every idea." That witness needs to be there. He impressed that on me very strongly. And he was a person who himself was very concerned about some of the trends in the ecumenical movement away from the missionary vision. Hmm. So uh, what little bit I've done on the sidelines, so to say, uh, has been inspired by people like Leslie Newbingen to a great extent. Yeah,
1: It's something that is easily lost on us, and, and I'm just thinking about it now, People like Mott and William Carey and Leslie newbegin they were missionaries in the mission field, and we're the, you're the only Christian out there any other Christian will do. Yeah. You know, I mean, When it comes to fellowship, you're not going to say, well, I'm a, a United Reformed Church missionary, and you are a Baptist missionary, <laughs> so we really can't work together, that you realize, golly, God has placed us together in this place, and of course... You know, if we have adult converts, you baptize them. If they're babies, I'll baptize them, and we'll sort it out. But how that, how that makes necessary bedfellows is taught by the scriptures. But also, there was no compromising of what they saw as the particulars of their denomination. I mean, Leslie Newbegin after. You may know that the church in India was, was united. All of the Protestant denominations came together. And now there's a church in North India, a church in South India. And Newbegin was made a bishop in, in the South Indian church. Mm-hmm. And when he retired and moved back to England, where he moved in England, the local bishop said, Well, I want to make you an honorary assistant in my diocese. And he said, Well, that will be very awkward because I plan on going to the United Reformed Church... That I'm a part of uh, down the road. And so even he kept to his principles
0: but understood what needed to be done to see the gospel advanced. When I was last, my last conversation with Leslie Newbegin, he was talking about how thrilled he was to be a part of the ministry of Holy Trinity Brompton, an Anglican, charismatic Anglican church out of which the Alpha movement came. He would go and teach Sunday school to them and thought, uh, I'm not doing anything funny. I'm advancing the gospel through this wonderful church. Well, uh, you know, you you talk about holding on to your convictions. I have a term for that, uh, an ecumenism of conviction, not an ecumenism of accommodation. An ecumenism of accommodation is where you say, we're going to split the difference. We're going to find the lowest common denominator. It doesn't really matter what you believe. That is not the way forward. In fact, I think that's the way backward. So we want people who are deeply rooted in the tradition of which they come, assuming it's a faithful gospel tradition, and are willing to dig deep. And the theory that I have is, if you drill down deep enough into any of these traditions that belong to the, what we call the great tradition, if you drill down deeply enough, then you will come to that flowing river which is the spiritual life of Jesus Christ. And that's where we find unity, not on the surface, but down deep. So as, as Beeson looks beyond 30 years,
1: uh, what, what are some things that you are going to keep your eye on and as, as indicators and ho- as a hope for Beeson moving forward?
0: Well, you know, Beeson is a unique place. Uh, we're a part of a university context, Samford University, a Historic Baptist University. We're in Alabama. Uh, some people say, okay, hey, you even have a theological school in Alabama. So uh, we fight stereotypes all the time. And I think, uh, you know, I have a theory, maybe I shouldn't say this in such a public forum, but it's not altogether bad for people to be a little bit confused about who you are. (laughs) Right. It it gives you a chance to show them who you are and to dispel these stereotypes. So I think going forward, uh, Beeson is a healthy place. Uh, There's a good spirit, I think a good morale in the faculty and the students. Uh, And I'm entirely confident that God will lead Beeson forward in the right way, in the good way, for another generation, we pray, uh, for as long as God sees fit for it to, to serve in that way. Now there are trends. We talk about trends in theological education, and we have to be aware of those, and I think we have to try to adjust to those in lots of different ways. One of the trends is the way technology interfaces with all of our work, and certainly in in theological education. We've not been a pace-setter in that regard, but I think that's something we have to continue to look at. Uh, Another trend uh, in theological education is how much it costs. You know, it's very expensive to do theological education, and especially the Beeson Way, which focuses an awful lot on person-to-person, face-to-face, one-on-one, heart-to-heart, mind-to-mind kind of interaction. Uh, more the discipling model, in a way. is expensive to do it that way, and students uh, you know, are finding that difficult, and we've got to continue to support them. We do support our students, I should say, very generously with the help of a lot of friends. And I, I, I want to take this little segue in the conversation to say to thank you, and the Cathedral Church of the Advent for being a wonderful friend to Beeson Divinity School, going back, I think I counted right through five deans, including you, back to Larry Gibson. Um, I may have gotten these names out of order Paul Zoll, uh, Frank Limehouse, and you did I leave somebody out through all of those deans and we've had we 've had students from from our school come here and learn, be interns. Well, you, you used to have a CPE congregational program, uh, and we, we were a part of that. So in many, many ways, uh, the Cathedral Church of the Advent is one of our strongest congregational partners, and we are deeply grateful, not only for what you do for Beeson and your openness to what we're doing, but also for the witness you are for Jesus Christ in Birmingham, Alabama. It's very important for the Cathedral Church of the Advent to be a strong uncompromising gospel witness in the midst of our culture today. And so God bless you to keep on doing that well. Our uh, well it's our
1: honor to be partners in the gospel. I guess if I could... Put it this way, you're easy to love. And, uh, and by you, I mean Beeson, you as well. Uh, but, but Beeson is, is a real gift. And I know that it's been a gift to many of you in the congregation. Uh, some of you are graduates of Beeson. I know Catherine Jacob holds a Master's in Theology from Beeson. Uh, but also even lay people, and the number of lay people and that we encourage them to be a part of the lay academy. And so you're not just equipping future pastoral leaders but also lay leaders and, and these aren't just sort of surfacy night classes but really deep rich uh, academic endeavors for lay people to to yeah. learn more of the we
0: Lord. use the same professors in the lay academy of theology as we do in our regular curriculum and so there, there's no lessening of quality now you may not have to do as many papers i don't know about that But uh, it's a wonderful program. Many of you, I know, participate in it, and all of you are welcome to come and try it out. And uh, it's one of the ways we try to reach out to the community. And uh, what does uh, life post-deanship
1: look like for you and your wife?
0: Well, I tell people I'm uh, retiring. I'm not dying. That's right. At least least I hope I'm not. (laughs) It remains to be seen. But uh, I will be a research professor after a sabbatical leave uh, from Beeson Divinity School. Uh, And what does a research professor do? Uh, I'm not really sure, except that I will teach some, maybe a course or two a year anyway. I will do research and writing. I have a number of projects, seven book contracts that I have not yet fulfilled. It's gnawing on my conscience. So I'm really hoping to give myself to that and to stay as involved as I can with wonderful churches like the Cathedral Church of the Advent and other places that I may have an opportunity to minister. Oh, great. That's my hope. Amen.
1: Yeah. Hey, as I said, at the 9 o'clock, uh, you, you may be retiring as dean, but you're certainly not retiring from gospel ministry. And so that's, uh, that's tremendous. And uh, I know you'll continue to be a blessing to, to God's church. Do you have questions for... For Dean George. Uh, Dr. George would you uh, comment about the student requirements for admission uh, the size of the student body and the rigorousness of the curriculum?
0: Your, your first point, Dr. Hull, I missed it. Your, your first it's comment.
1: The first comment, uh, the requirements for student admission
0: For admission, okay.
1: The size of the student body and then the rigorousness of the curriculum.
0: Well, it it takes something to get in BESA. We don't take everybody who applies, and we shouldn't. Uh, We require, as most any accredited seminary would, an undergraduate degree of high caliber. Uh, But also the the rigors of the curriculum, we require uh, more than above average of biblical languages. We have both Greek and Hebrew four semesters of each as a part of our curriculum. Uh, I'm happy with that, but if I wanted to change it, I don't think our faculty would go along with it. We're committed to the proclamation of the Word of God, and so we believe students need to really wrestle with the text of Scripture in a significant way. Uh, We have a, uh, what we called a few years ago, we we decided, uh, this may be unique, I don't know, we decided to abolish two disciplines systematic theology, and church history. And in their place, we have what we call an integrated history and doctrine sequence. So students are learning the history of the church while they're learning the doctrinal foundation of the church uh, in dialogue one with another. And I think that's been a good experiment. Uh, We we continue to get good feedback from students who appreciate that sort of uh, integrated approach. So the curriculum, uh, you know, curriculum's always a moving target. Uh, we just, re- we used to have one of the, I think, highest number of hours of any ATS school for the m- Master of Divinity. I believe it was 94. We reduced that to 87 hours. So uh, we're coming down out of the stratosphere <laughs> just a little bit. But it's still, I would say, a very rigorous uh, and uh, demanding curriculum. And you're a dentist, right, by training? Why should preachers get off any better than dentists. I mean, we need to have people fully, thoroughly trained, uh, at least as good as you dentists are. And so we're working on that.
1: Mm. Amen. And that is, I I wish I didn't want to pick on them, but there are some visitors this morning from the School of Theology from the University of the South. And uh, and we have a, a seminarian doing his placement here. And we asked the question very naively about biblical languages. And there, there isn't any requirement for biblical languages uh, full stop, which certainly opens up the curriculum. I mean, you could begin to teach on things you probably ought not to. Uh, but but nonetheless, just to really be able to handle God's Word and having uh, four semesters of Greek and Hebrew, which I didn't even have, uh, is, is really... Um, so helpful in the, in the preaching ministry uh, of, of the church. In fact, uh, I was talking to another seminarian who said that his preaching professor said, never say that the Greek says or that the Hebrew says, uh, because it, it's too off-putting. And, and I told the student that that was rubbish and that he should stop going to that class. Uh, because you really are trying, you know, Robert Smith's good word, uh, uh, I preach so that you can preach. Mm. Uh, and and Beeson uh, Beeson does a a really faithful and wonderful job in that endeavor thank you other questions for Dean George Victor Dean George um, um, could you just take a few minutes and talk about your growing up because I think that is so important to who you are and how you've developed as a believer and a scholar
0: say again Victor I missed your question my ears aren't working too well about your growing, my, up. My, my, my growing up well um, yes I'm glad I grew up uh, <laughs> that I had that opportunity I, I I'm from Chattanooga Tennessee that's my hometown uh, my father was an alcoholic my mother had polio and so I was brought up by two great aunts who loved me very much cared for me and you know took me to church taught me Jesus loves me and things like that We didn't have very many uh, worldly possessions. In fact, uh, you could say we were dirt poor, but we couldn't afford any dirt. Uh, So we were down kind of at that level socioeconomically. But I don't look back on that as being a deprivation so much, though there were things about it that certainly were not pleasant. But uh, there was a wonderful close-knit community that we were part of. The church was a big part of that. They enveloped us and loved us and helped us when we needed help. And so um, that's how I came to be and grew up. And I would say the two places were really three, three places that uh, I found a connection that I look back on my life with great gratitude. Um, One uh, was the church. Uh, Another was the school's. I'm a product of the public schools of Chattanooga and I know things have changed that was a long time ago but I'm ever grateful for those teachers who taught me basic stuff and then the third place may or may not surprise you was the public library we couldn't afford books so the library opened up the world to me I would go there and on my bike on Saturday and just get all the books that started with A and (laughs) I never made it through all of them but you know it was a way of learning things I never would have learned without that service. So I'm a big fan of the public library. To this day, though I have a library of about seven or 8,000 books, I uh, go to the public library because I find it enriching and interesting. So that's enough of an answer, probably. A chip. I think you might have answered this partially earlier, and I kind of feel like an old man asking this question, but... Have you found the tone of theological, ecumenical debate amongst students to be, become more like discordant and harsh in the past eight years? Yeah, it, the,
1: the question is, Have you found, at times at Beeson, that having an interdenominational seminary, that sometimes some issues can get to the point of rancor, and the tone may be a little bit bit stressed?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think we do have open discussions about controversial issues from time to time, even debates, uh, not many. We're not a big debating place, but once or twice we've had like a student discussion over a controverted issue. Uh, So that comes with the territory. But I mean, we're we're seeking truth. We have open hearts and open minds. So I, I don't think that's offensive. I don't think it's been divisive particularly because we all have the same kind of rules of operation. Again, it goes back to respect for one another Interest in learning and being open to hearing somebody else's views. That's kind of the way we operate. Understanding that we're going to have differences. If you're going to have an interdenominational school, you're going to differ just ipso facto about things like baptism. About things like church governance. To maybe list two of the least controversial <laughs> issues in our day and time. Uh, it's been enriching more than problematic but what you're talking about does happen. It happens among students and occasionally even faculty get drawn into that kind of discussion. Do you an increase in rancor as the years go on or? Sometimes I could wish we had more rancor about some of these things. <laughs> We're just uh, we just love one another and get along and uh, you know uh, it's kind of boring sometimes. But uh, no I think Within, within certain individuals and maybe even certain uh, sectors of the Beeson community, faculty, students, and staff, what you're saying uh, can be found. It's not totally absent, nor should it be.
1: Yeah, I've, I found that people who are looking for a fight almost always find it. We all... Uh, grateful for Dean George. We've got to go to let uh, folks come in for the 11 o'clock. But of course, uh, check out the Beeson Divinity website. Get a little bit more interested in Beeson. And after his sabbatical, he'll have some time on his hands. And so maybe uh, you can have a chat with him then. But go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Well, they never clap for anybody. That's good.